Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the review show for episode 41 on voter ID with the Electoral Reform Society's Darren Hughes. I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'm joined by my colleague, Henna Shah. At one point this week, the Tories attempted to bring forward parliamentary recess that MPs wouldn't have had to return to Westminster next week. People seem to take this as a cue to try and fit in as much politics as possible this week, it seemed. It's been a really busy few days. What do you think was your favourite part of the week, Henna? Favourite is a very strong word. <laughs> um, which, which bit would you like to talk about first? Is possibly talk about more... none of it? Is that possible? Uh, we've got about 10 minutes to fill, so if we could... Talk about something. (laughs) I think probably my favourite story of this week is something that's been flying under the radar with what the world burning. Mm. And that's Ian Paisley's apology. In case you haven't seen it, it's very possible you haven't. Ian Paisley's got himself into a bit of trouble because he's taken some Sri Lankan holidays from the Sri Lankan government and hasn't declared them, Mm. which is obviously a bit of a no-no. Because he's a he, well, he's a DUP MP, isn't he? So, yeah. so he had to apologise in Parliament, I think, did he? Yes, he did. And in his apology, he quoted Isaiah, which, great use of the Bible there. He said, you were angry with me. That anger has turned away. You comfort me. I hope to learn that lesson. I think actually, if I'm remembering my Bible correctly, that is when Isaiah is apologising for having taken uh, holidays from the king of Assyria without declaring them. I seem to remember that. Maybe maybe not. <laughs> but I mean, at least he's picked something for relevance, isn't he? He hasn't just um, picked any old quote. Obviously, that's completely made up. But actually, it is interesting because he's now been suspended for mm-hmm. 30 days, hasn't he? And given the... Uh, obviously, there's, there's recess, but um, given the number of Brexit votes that will be happening, that could actually genuinely change the course of Brexit because it depletes the Tory majority once again. Sure, he regrets that time in the Sun Lounger now. <laughs> I think my favourite part of this week was when the Tory rebels were threatened by the government that the government would call an election if the MPs didn't vote the right way in a crunch Brexit vote this week, which I thought was brilliant because that threat only works if you are reliant on losing the election that you call, which I think is brilliant. Like, essentially you are just saying we are so bad that the only way we can sack you is by being this bad and (laughs) getting the voters along. It's strange because you keep seeing May in this position where you think there's no way she can come back from this. She is so weak. And she manages to turn every weakness into a strength by just admitting how rubbish she is. (laughs) And it's just astonishing And I kind of want to say props to her for just (laughs) saying, you know what, I know I'm robotic, no one likes me, you're all screwed if I'm screwed, you're going down with me. Absolutely hilarious. And, you know, I was was actually reading a book about the 2017 general election this week, in which 
it's explained that the Tories built in six weeks from the moment that they called the 2017 general election at the end of April to the polling day on June the 8th because they knew they'd have to get the election through Parliament and they expected Labour to vote against it, which would mean that you didn't get the two-thirds support that you need. And essentially, it was they just didn't expect Labour to vote for it, which seems like such a bizarre calculation. Because obviously Labour's going to... The opposition is nearly always going to vote for a general election so that you can say to people, we need to get rid of this government. But that miscalculation, I think really helped Labour in the long run because if it was a four-week campaign, it was only about three weeks in that the Tories started to implode. So if you only have one week of imploding, then... Only three weeks (laughs) in. (laughs) But but it meant that they had weeks upon weeks of doing terribly and Labour doing quite well rather than just like a week of that happening. It does seem that, yeah, completely misunderstanding how elections work is a complete facet of the current Tory party. Yeah. I completely agree. One of my other favourite things this week is the pairing scandal, where Tory Brandon Lewis was supposed to be paired with Lib Dem Joe Swinson, who's on maternity leave, meaning that he wouldn't vote because she couldn't vote. But he voted on a tight Brexit motion that could have led to that general election. He blamed the whips. The whips blamed him. They all said it's some misunderstanding. No one did it on purpose. But now it seems that Tory Chief Whip Julian Smith may have actually instructed him to do it because he didn't vote on all of the motions. He only voted on the ones that were going to be very close. Yeah, I think it's very apt that I think this week it was International Snake Day. (laughs) Um, And I think that's probably all the comment I have on this. (laughs) I just, I find it amazing that uh, it feels like they have been lying and they've not been but they've not kind of run their stories past each other about why this must have happened. But I think breaking the pairing is a very brave thing to do when you have such a slim majority in the Commons, because if then the oppositions decide that they don't trust you to do the pairing, then every vote suddenly becomes properly up for grabs. Well, I think on a serious note, we see this a lot with what's happening in the House currently. So voting on the fact that Parliament won't get a say on certain things, the use of Henry VIII clauses, it seems Mm. that kind of, and we see it globally really with Trump, the norms of democratic politics are being eroded. Mm. And this is one of them. And it's like our, um, someone said something really interesting. I think Darren was really interesting on the podcast on Monday when he said actually voting in this country has always relied on trust. And actually Mm. politics in this country has always relied on trust. And this is one exactly clear example of when the trust that's built up in our political community is just being absolutely battered by whatever is going on. And that's really worrying about whether we can come back from that. Because none of these norms are enshrined anywhere in law. They're just Mm, historic agreements that have existed. And if we don't uphold them in our daily actions and deeds, then they don't exist. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I'd not really thought about it that way. And so much of our political structure in this country does actually rely on having a modicum of trust in our political opponents. And if you don't have that, then it does suddenly all fall away and definitely helps populism in in that sense. Um, But yeah, absolutely. In in terms of um, both voter ID and the boundary changes, which we spoke about a little bit at the end of Mm. Tuesday's podcast, they look like they're going to be rearing its head again on, on neither of those things to actually trust the starting point for the thinking behind it and and it's always a bit sad to kind of say that because I do like to take opponents arguments in good faith and I do try and do that but sometimes it actually is incredibly difficult I think we should also 
touch on um, the Labour NEC's decision not mm-hmm. to adopt the full International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism this week, which has um, made it a tough few days, really, hasn't it, I think? Yeah. I don't know about you, but I feel one of the really interesting, or possibly the most interesting aspect of this, is how difficult it must have been to get to this point. It's, um, you know, this shameful debacle that has happened was not easy, it was hard. You know, when there is an international consensus about a definition of anti-Semitism, uh, the one, one that's accepted by the Crown Prosecution Service, the Board of Deputies, the Jewish Labour Movement, and even, even the bloody Tories, like making the move to implement a weaker definition is actually a hard thing to do. You know, when 68 rabbis from across different wings of Judaism sign an open letter requesting that Labour adopts the more stringent definition, then going through the whole rigmarole of watering down that definition is not the easy option. And it does make it quite clear that none of this was done by accident and it was not done under some misapprehension that people wouldn't notice. This was a fight that they knew would happen and essentially that they have wanted to have. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about this before and about my sort of outrage as the resident angry, not white woman, about this and that we are an anti-racist party and we should be doing anti-racist things and anti-Semitism is a form of racism. One thing I've been reflecting on this week is actually the strength of all the Jewish people within the Labour Party to say, actually, the strength of some of these MPs who are Jewish and some of these members who are Jewish too to stay in the party when actually their identity has been attacked. Like if that were me, my family's Muslim, not very good Muslim, but if the same thing happened and it was say Islamophobia mm. and lots of imams and lots of Muslim groups have said, this is institutionally Islamophobic. You need to, you need to adopt this because this is a problem. And the Labour leadership had basically turned around and said, no, you're not right because a couple of Muslims don't agree with you. For me, that would probably be the end of the road for me and the party because yeah. it's a total attack on the very core of who you are. And I think as you take a moment amongst all the politics of this to think about actually the strength and the fight that these people have to stay in the party mm. because it's on, it's astonishingly impressive. And for people listening, if you do want to kind of be involved in the solidarity and the fight back against what is happening with regards to the anti-Semitism in the party, I would really encourage you to join the Jewish labour movement. Non-Jews can join as allies. I'm a member you can join at jlm.org.uk. The other thing that you should definitely do is make sure that you vote for the centre-left candidates in the NEC election when ballots start to come out next week. You can be absolutely dead sure that every single one of those nine candidates would have voted for the full IHRA definition this week. You can find out who they are at laboursay.eu forward slash about. That's the campaign that they're running. But that is really important in steps to making sure that our rules are as stringent as they possibly can be. We should also finally finish on the um, pub quiz question this week. You've already mentioned um, Donald Trump. My question this week was uh, about the press release that was sent out about the Piers Morgan Donald Trump interview, which happened the other day, which sadly I missed. Uh, I don't see if you saw me. Sadly? Okay. I did not watch the interview. Um, I think... Through choice. Don't quote me on this, but... I think it's the case that a rerun of Have I Got News For You actually got 
more live viewers than really? Piers Morgan's interview with Trump. Uh, I think this may actually, for once, say more about Piers Morgan than it does about his interview subject. But there you go. <laughs> the a question I asked was how many of the quotes, there was 30 quotes in the press release that were sent out ahead of the interview being aired. How many of those quotes uh, were actually from Piers Morgan rather than Donald Trump? It was obviously a very difficult question. It was very, very specific. And people did have a few guesses. We had a couple of people who guessed around 10 uh, which would be a third of the quotes. A couple of people said around 15, which would mean half as many quotes from the interviewer as the President of the United States. Did you know the answer? I did not know the answer, the answer no. The answer was 21 of the 30 quotes were from Piers Morgan, which I do think is is truly incredible. I really want to say that that surprises me. No, it doesn't at but all, I feel does like it? any fewer would have been him being very humble. It was, um, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, amazing that you gave any space to Donald Trump at all, really. But that is all we have time for this show. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Do remember to send in any comments and questions. Leave a review, rate and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.